0: Hello and welcome to our Secular Overeaters podcast series where you'll hear from speakers who have found recovery from food and other addictions without God. For additional information, go to secularovereaters.org. And now let's get to today's podcast.
1: Welcome to our Recovery Strategies Workshop sponsored by Secular Overeaters. At this 75-minute program, you'll hear secular members describe how they define their recovery, how they attained it, and how they maintain it. This portion of the program should take around 40 minutes. When we return from the breakout groups, we'll have time for questions for our panelists. We will end our program at a quarter after the hour. All are welcome to stay after that for socializing with Susan and Jenny. We'll start our program by reading OA's Current statement on abstinence and recovery. This is found on page five of OA's Business Conference Policy Manual. Abstinence is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. Spiritual, emotional, and physical recovery is the result of living and working the Overeaters Anonymous 12 step program on a daily basis. This statement has been amended three times in the past 10 years, indicating there are nuances and how members view our recovery. Our panelists will speak to their experience with recovery. I'll now turn the mic over to Susan who will introduce our panelists. Thanks Kay.
2: My name is Susan and I'm a compulsive overeater. We have four panelists today, Janet M, Kathy C, Kathy S, and Nina M. We've requested that they limit their shares to 10 minutes and you will notice that Elizabeth will be keeping time. We provided our panelists with four prompt questions. One, when did you come into OA? Two, how do you define recovery? Three, what aspects of program helped you? Um, Tools or steps? And then four, how do you maintain your recovery? Our panelists will speak in alphabetical order and I'll call on each of you individually. So our lineup is Janet, Kathy C, Kathy S, and Nina. Janet, the floor is yours. Thank you
0: and good morning. My name is Janet. I'm a recovering, I'm recovering from compulsive overeating. I live just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, I'm not clear on whether I have a food addiction or an eating disorder. And it seems that medical professionals and researchers don't agree on the definition, so it doesn't matter too much for me. I'll refer to it as a food addiction for myself. What matters is that after decades or in which I yo-yoed a few times, but mostly stayed at a weight that was too high for my frame and too high for my health, I have found recovery. For 50-some years, I had constant food images and food voices in my head, motivating me to consume more and more food because it took more and more for me to feel satisfied. As a friend put it recently, I was choosing food to turn on the technicolor in my brain. In addition to the large portions I ate at regular meals, the foods I habitually, secretly binged not only kept my weight high, but also negatively impacted my health. I developed sleep apnea and heart palpitations, and my numbers on the A1C um, blood test that checks for prediabetes were creeping up steadily. I have a family history of heart and arterial disease, diabetes, type two diabetes, and high blood pressure, but I lived in denial. And when loved ones expressed concern for me and implored me to get help, it just um, made me get myself as quickly as I could to a bakery, where I would continue the cycle of binging and loathing and feeling desperately out of control. As Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman says, willpower is finite. I couldn't invoke willpower often enough or make it last long enough to affect a meaningful change in my eating. But a year ago this past January, my husband and I were helping manage a life-threatening addiction situation for one of our close family members. And I was gorging myself to numb the stress. And as a result, my weight was higher than ever. I decided enough was enough. I wanted to get my own addiction under control in order to be able to help our family member. So I went to my doctor, he heard me, he listened, he really heard me and he felt my commitment to change was sincere. And we decided to try medication. He had previously tried acupuncture with me, which had a, a limited effect. We t- he tried medication. Um, he wrote the prescription to a compounding pharmacy, which kept the cost very reasonable. And from the second day, my cravings and my food images ceased. On that second day, I was sitting here at the desk and I noticed the sound of the garage door going down as my husband left for several hours, and it didn't signal me to jump up and run to my stash of hidden food, as it always had in the past. And I stayed seated right here at my desk, and I thought, huh, this is different. It might be working. And I finally had hope. In the same week, much to my tremendous relief, I found secular overeaters. And at the first meeting, one of, them mentioned, one of the members mentioned that she was abstinent. And my first thought was, oh, I could never be abstinent from the foods that I love so much. But over the me- next few days, I started to think, maybe I could make that decision and stick to it. So I threw out all the junk that I'd been hiding. And I cleaned out all the shared junk my husband and I had in the pantry. And fortunately, he was fine with that. Um, I started buying, cooking and eating what I call clean and green, which is for me, fruits, vegetables, lighter types of meat, fish and seafood, lighter grains and virtually no processed foods. And I completely stopped eating sugar and flour. I increased my exercise from three or four to at least six days per week. And I started journaling meals and exercising uh, and exercise I also began the practice that I still continue of weighing myself every morning to keep track of how I'm I'm balancing my intake with my energy needs.
3: Um,
0: I gathered from something I read early on in OA or in secular materials, that taking medication was frowned upon or considered not to be authentic. So I felt for several months as if I had an unfair advantage over people and I didn't mention that I was taking medicine a medication, but I finally opened up to one secular member about it. And then I opened up about it in a meeting and nobody had a negative response to me, um, which really added to my feeling of of receiving judgmental acceptance, which I value so much from this group. About six months after about six months on the medication with my doctor's approval, I weaned off it. And I was very watchful, thinking that the old cravings might return, but they didn't, and they still haven't, and for that I'm extremely grateful. I attribute that to the healing that has taken place in my brain and my body chemistry, and also to the new habits that I've been able to lock in. Through the readings and sharing we've done in secular groups I attend, I've learned so much more about neural pathways and hormones the vagus nerve, the gut biome, as well as a lot about emotional eating and how to counter permission-giving thoughts. My mantra there is a no to the, whatever the red food may be, a no to the food is a yes to me. I've also found some of the books and discussions on alternative steps to be really beneficial, especially in solidifying my sense of mindfulness and in being accountable to myself. And I also really value phone calls with secular friends and meetings with recovery circles that that I've been a part of forming. So day 365 of abstinence was on January 31st. I'd lost 52 pounds, thank you all, um, by last summer and I've maintained that goal weight since then. Today is year two, day 12, and I feel such a tremendous sense of liberation. I'm excited to feel a lightness and a healthy hunger in my body when I wake up each morning. And my commitment to abstinence results in a sense of freedom day after day. So abstinence for me is still about the day-to-day practical choice not to eat sugar and flour. Um, And I'm relieved to say that choice isn't difficult anymore because I finally got the message that those foods are toxic for me and I don't want them in my body. So they actually repel me. I found out how delicious, clean, green vegetables are. I love the light and buoyant feeling that they give me shortly after I'm eaten. If I eat too large a volume, it makes me uncomfortable. I feel the pressure in my stomach and I'll see it the next morning on the scale. So I keep my my intake moderate. On a higher level, though, abstinence has given me the power and control I need to maintain a healthy body. Uh, I no longer need the heart and acid reflux medications I used to take. I no longer use the CPAP machine that I use for sleep apnea. And my blood tests have shown that I'm well out of the danger for for prediabetes. I know the word control is a hot button for some people. I remember years ago, a friend saying her eating was the only thing in life she could control. And I thought to myself, that's the one thing I wish I could control. I I couldn't embrace the traditional wording of step one that I encountered in a way because I could never bring myself to say I am powerless over food. Saying I was powerless would have felt like freefall to me and like giving up. Power was what I was seeking. But saying, as Jeffrey Munn does in his um, version of step one in Staying Sober Without God, that I was caught in a self destructive cycle and lacked the tools to stop it, that wording really resonated with me and it opened up a world of hope. And I began breaking the cycle and seeking the tools. So for me, eating is one of the few things in life I can now control. I prefer to think of it in slightly different words as I wrap up here. I am holding the reins on my relationship with food. I no longer eat out of boredom or as punctuation to stimulate myself while working or to numb pain or for entertainment. To satisfy those needs, I knit to keep my hands busy. I take a walk to regulate my body rhythms. I journal or talk with a friend to release my stresses or I read a book or magazine to entertain myself. I make the decisions about how I will nurture my body. And given that I'm holding the reins, I envision a beautiful horse beneath me propelling my body forward, and her name is Abstinence. So I put together uh, my list of nine things that I do, which I'll be happy to post in the chat, weigh myself every morning, eat three clean and green meals a day, plus one quarter cup almonds, if I'm feeling true hunger pangs, Uh, drink plenty of water, I have one serving of alcohol per week at most, daily exercise, Um, I journal each morning, noting any stressors, positive or negative, in any unusual circumstances. Incorporate positive activities such as reading and knitting to reduce stress. Attend secular meetings, and I attend two per week, and I also give service to secular. I participate in recovery circles, and I maintain supportive relationships with fellow secular members um, on a one-to-one basis and reach out when needed. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, Janet. All right, Kathy
3: C, you're up. I'm going to time myself as well. Um, Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a compulsive eater. It's good to see all of you. Some of you I know, most I don't. Um, The prompt questions. So when did I come into OA? Well, I came into OA at age approximately age 30. It's about 1987. So do the math and you'll know I've been around a while. Um, however, currently I've been abstinent for a year and a half, so that'll tell you. I mean this disease is cunning, baffling, powerful. It is. It's slippery. Um, I'm a person who uh, was raised by a compulsive eater. I've been a compulsive eater as soon as I was old enough to learn behavior and triggers so that's pretty much since infancy I think I've been a compulsive eater I don't know if what the genetic uh, aspects of this disease are but I know for sure I learned it at a very very young age so I'm a lifelong compulsive eater um how do you define recovery that's an interesting question I like um a, a definition that uh, a nutritionist once gave me for abstinence, which I really love, she said, abstinence is eating and living in a manner that does not trigger the disease. And I thought, oh, so it's kind of like it takes a disease out of my life. So then it's up to me what else I want there to be in my life, you know, because it's like, OK, the disease was such a big part of my life. So now how do I want to fill my life, you know? And I've I've made a life for myself over the years in recovery because of that. But it requires subtracting out the action of the disease on a daily basis for, in order for there to be room for that. Um, what aspects of the program help me achieve some level of recovery? This is something that I could talk about a little bit more, I think. Um I am a pretty much an introvert. Um, I was bullied as a kid and I just became a loner. And so, I still kind of am and the pandemic didn't help matters cuz I work from home now, so, you know. <laughs> it's uh but I but yeah, I enjoy people just in small doses, you know, in small doses. But one of the aspects of the program that has helped me more than any other is sponsorship because it's it's the connection with another person that I would not normally seek out. I would not normally seek out that level of intimacy with another person, uh, except maybe my family. Um, and yet it feels good. Uh, I have a sponsor currently. I've had all different sponsors during my time in recovery. I had the sponsor who helped me the most early on. I had various sponsors to begin with um when I before I got abstinent I would ask sponsors to sponsor me who were not abstinent because this abstinent people were too scary for me because I had had a lifetime of my mom being the diet police and I just did not want somebody overseeing me like that um well, my first I call her my first real sponsor she taught me a lot about how to work the program and I was pretty godphobic when I came in this program. So um, I would say I'm less so now, although I do not consider myself to be religious in any sense. Um, So it means something different to me now than it did, you know, the traditional meaning of it when I first came in. But nonetheless, my first sponsor took me through the big book of AA. And what I got from that was how an addict thinks it really does a good job of dissecting the thought process of an addict. And that helped me a great deal because I really recognize a lot of that in myself and realize that there's very little difference between the way I think and the way an alcoholic thinks, very little. Um, You know, having a food plan has been very important to me because left in my own devices, I will just go for it. I will just go for it and do kind of what I want. So what the food plan has done for me, in the beginning, it felt restrictive. Now it feels like, okay, this is my information about what will keep my body healthy. This is it. This is like for my age and my activity level, this is how much my body needs. Now, if I choose to go beyond that, my body's gonna react, it's gonna change. And my thought process is gonna get squirrely if I start seeking out more and more and more, because that's my disease. My own personal disease is one of more. You know, I always say I used to watch (laughs) in the early days when I used to watch Saturday Night Live and they used to have the Conehead characters on there. And one of the things they used to say was consume mass quantities. That was me. I so totally related to that. It was like more, 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 numb, numb my feelings. That was always the thing for me. So having a food plan has really helped me. It's given me guardrails so that I just don't go off too far. And it's also helped me uh, get to a healthy body weight. Now, I did relapse during the pandemic. Now, I'm pretty much back to a healthy body weight. I'm a little above where I need to be. But, uh, you know, that's all right. I'll get there. There's no hurry. Got the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, I also, um, how do I maintain my recovery? You know, I don't have, you know, this panel is called Recovery Strategies. And for me, strategies is a little bit more intentional and planned than what my life experience is. But what I have is an accumulation of things that sponsors and nutritionists and other members of the program have taught me. And here are some of the things that I do. Um, I don't weigh myself because as a sponsor pointed out to me early on, there's no perfect number because if it's too high, you know, I make myself crazy. And if if it's low, then I want more. Like, well, it's not low enough. And in any case, I have body dysmorphia. So it's very hard for me to tell. So I, I tend to go by my clothes. Uh, you know, my clothes will tell me everything I really need to know about what size I am. Um, but my, nutri- my professionals need to know. My doctor needs to know. My nutritionist needs to know. So I have a schedule where when I see my nutritionist, I, w- I weigh myself and then I give her the number. So that's like every three months, something like that. Or when I go to the doctor, I get weighed. Um, but it just kind of takes that number out of my head. Uh, and that's very helpful because I need all the space I can get in there for like life, you know. Um, another thing I do is, you know, a lot of people pray in the morning. I've never been like a meditator per se. And I feel like I want to do that more. But when I I have a very... Um, and it's not rigid at all, but I would say I have a routine. And when I get up, one of the first things I do is I make breakfast because I'm one of those people that's hungry first thing in the morning. I know some people are not, you know, they really can't eat first thing in the morning. Me, I'm waking up. I'm like, the disease is like ready to go. So one of the first things I do is I eat my abstinent breakfast. And the next thing I do is um, I have a tracking sheet that my nutritionist has me fill out. So I fill that out in the morning and I email that to my sponsor. Because I think after a while, she gets tired of like hearing all the, you know, people committing their food over the phone. It's like, oh, my God, I can't listen to this again. But if I put it in an email, she can read it whenever she wants. But once it's out of my hands, I know it's turned over. And that's one, that's the turning over. Um, you know, that's actually a step three for me. A sponsor of mine, you know, again, this this early sponsor that I had, she taught me that my action of step three is following my food plan. Because that's turning it over, you know, turning it over from what I would rather do to something that's healthier for me and turning it over to, I guess I would say spirit of the universe, which is kind of more like what I believe in, but certainly to the collective wisdom of what I learn in this program is healthy for me to do. Um, and so on there I write what I'm gonna eat for the day. And I pretty much, that's pretty much what I have. You know, one of the things that I struggle with, um, and I don't eat sugar because I just like I can't handle it. It's, you know, it's for me, it's like an alcoholic taking a drink. If I, if I eat a lot of sugar, I'm just like, I'm off. Or even sugar lookalike, like fruit sweetened sugar, sugary type foods. No, can't do that either. But um, <clears throat> you know, so I have my lunch planned out. I have my dinner planned out. Sometimes I need to make a change and I just email my sponsor or when I talk to her the next day, you know, I just tell her. But not keeping it to myself because my particular disease thrives on keeping it to myself, keeping it a secret. As somebody once said to me, any rule I make, I'll break, which is certainly true. So if I'm alone with it, I will break the rules because nobody knows. And it's just up to me. Well, yeah, but I'm the one who pays the price for that. Because my body will start reacting if if I start eating more food. I would just say that I'm really glad to be here. And I'm really happy and looking forward to hearing what other strategies other recovering people have. So I'll keep coming back. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kathy.
2: All right, Kathy, yes, it's your turn.
4: Good morning, everybody. I'm Kathy I'm in Northern California lovely sunny day today. I'm in recovery from compulsive overeating and sugar addiction. Um, I first came into OA in November of 2018 absolutely desperate because I had tried everything, every diet, every method, everything I could think of to lose weight and keep it off and that never worked. I had three. Amazing revelations in that very first meeting. One, I was an addict. I had no idea I was an addict. That was kind of mind blowing. A second one was I wasn't alone. There were people in this room who did the same bizarre food behaviors that I did. I wasn't the only one doing it in secret, lots of other people were doing the same things. And the third revelation was, this is recoverable. Because those people were talking about those behaviors in the past tense. Here's what I did. They weren't saying, here's what I do. So for the very first time, I thought, oops, maybe, maybe this is going to work for me too. The first share I heard was uh, a person saying, That while they were eating, they were thinking about what they were going to eat next. And then while they ate that, they were thinking about what they were going to eat next. And finally had the realization there just wasn't enough food in the kitchen to satisfy whatever it was that was going on. That's just exactly how I felt. It was amazing hearing my thoughts and frustrations and fear right there in a chair. So that kept me coming back. And my idea of recovery is the freedom from the compulsive behaviors and the freedom from the compulsive thoughts. Now, I've got the behaviors mostly gone, but I still struggle sometimes with the thoughts because they've been ingrained for decades. It's my go-to, I'm stressed, what should I eat? I'm scared, or what should I eat? I feel lonely, what should I eat? So I've had to really work to think of different things. It's kind of like no matter how long you are on that road, the ditch is the same distance away. (laughs) So you're you're starting off at six feet away, you're a thousand miles along, it's six feet away. It's always going to be there. So you need strategy so you don't go into that ditch. The aspects of the program that have helped me the most is action plan, action plan action plan. I have a food plan and it's not strict because, you know, you make a rule, you break it. And I don't want to be stuck to something. So I will think about what I've got in the house and what I'd like to eat that's healthy because I don't have red foods in the house. Those aren't my choices anymore. But if I wake up in the morning and what I plan for breakfast doesn't sound delicious anymore, then I'll have what I wanted for lunch. I'm fine with that. I'm not rigid at all in this plan. So I got rid of all of my red foods and I got rid of those foods that aren't red in themselves, but made me want the red foods. I had no idea there was that connection in the food world too. I go to a lot of meetings. I know there are some folks who can get by with one or two uh, a week. I go to a meeting at least every day. I need the support because, as I said, this habit was so ingrained for decades and decades. So I need to keep it first and foremost in my head that these behaviors don't serve me any longer, that these behaviors are unhealthy. And going to meetings and listen to people share and sharing myself helps reinforce that. I always thought I could do this alone because, you know, superwoman, I can do anything by myself, right? Um, well, that didn't work. So. I have established a wonderful network of support. I am in recovery circles. If you haven't joined a recovery circle or started one, they're quite wonderful. Um, I have a sponsor who, um, even though she's not 100% secular, she absolutely respects that I am. And so that works well. Um, I have sponsees because... Nothing helps you get back on track when you want to get off it than when you're helping somebody else get back on track. So I have several sponsees. And that network of support is so important to me because I always think of a binge as an asteroid heading towards me. When it's very far away, it takes just a little bit to deflect it. But the closer it gets, the faster it gets, the more energy it takes to push it away. And sometimes you just give up and it hits and you binge. So if I start to think to myself that I haven't had sugar in a really long time, wouldn't that be wonderful? I text somebody and I say, I haven't had sugar in a really long time and I really want some. And somehow just saying that out loud and recognizing the consequences, that pushes that asteroid off course. And I don't have to fight it anymore. So that's what works for me. Every once in a while, if I absolutely have to go to the the store to get healthy foods and I've got cravings, I'll bookend with somebody. So I'm going to go in and I'm feeling kind of vulnerable. And then I text them when I come out and let them know how I did. And just the fact that I have to text them because I've promised that I would and text them what happened to me in that store, that will stop me from telling them, well, I grabbed a bag of such and such and I put it in my cart. So just those tiny little moves help me deflect a really serious onslaught. The literature approved by OA is not helpful to me. It's very God heavy. And as an atheist, I do not believe that there's an external power that's going to come in and help me and take that fork out of my hand. So I had to turn to the non- Uh, non-OA approved literature. Somebody mentioned Jeffrey Munn, what a wonderful book. Uh, He really puts things in perspective for me. Um, If you're more irreverent, Russell Brand also has a lot of good things to say about recovery. Um, So there are, and of course our monthly meeting where we do the alternative 12 steps, that really helps me too. To me, there are three steps. Admit you have a problem, do everything you can to work on the problem and then help others with the problems. Step one, two, three for me, that's what they are. I'm a sponsor, I'm a buddy. Um, I encourage people to reach out and text or talk to me if they need to, because it not only helps them, it helps me. I slipped during COVID because my carefully orchestrated plan fell apart because I I would leave the house and go and do things, and that would keep me away from the food. So I slipped back into COVID for, uh, or or into uh, overeating for a couple of months during the beginning of COVID. But I've been in the program Four and a half years now, and I have been abstinent for four of those four and a half years. I have maintained a healthy body weight for four of those four and a half years, something that I had never been able to achieve. I remember Oprah uh, on an Oprah show, she said she maintained that weight for one week. And then started going back up. Uh, that would be a record for me. I would maintain it for a day and start going back up. So uh, this is this is wonderful, and it really has so many benefits. I, I don't like nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. Because excuse me, I don't buy that one. But abstinence is wonderful because your body feels good. And as other people have mentioned, you don't need the meds. You don't need the sleep machines. You you can turn yourself over in bed because you're not turning 50 or 60 extra pounds. There are so many wonderful benefits to being abstinent and to maintaining that healthy body weight. I exercise every day. I'm a line dance instructor, so I'm on my feet a lot. And It's fun and it's social and it produces endorphins and makes me feel good. Uh, Sitting around on the couch does not make me feel good. And so I am up and active as much as I can be. And that's one of the main reasons, the main ways that I maintain um, is I'm active every day. I plan my food every day. The one thing that I miss a little bit that I have sacrificed for my abstinence is meeting people for food related events. I don't go to potlucks because they're triggering for me. I would much rather meet you and go for a walk than meet you for lunch. Um, I, I try to do everything I can to avoid those food themes. Um, and uh, all I can say to anybody who is struggling is keep coming back. My mind switched from I feel so sorry for myself that I can't binge to, I feel so good that I'm not binging. It really works if you stick with it. Thank you.
2: Couldn't get myself unmuted there. Sorry. Thank you so much, Kathy. Now we're going to hear from Nina.
5: Hi, everybody. Good to be with you. I'm Nina. I'm a compulsive eater. Um, so when did I come to OA? I, I would do some screen sharing and show you a photo, but I fear it would take too much time. But um, I came to OA right after Thanksgiving in 2017 and I weighed 320 pounds and I binged and that's all I did. I binged, I purged, I planned binges, I cleaned up binges, I strategized where I was going to get more food. I thought about the last place I had shopped or ordered from and you know you look at the credit card receipts I ordered from that place Tuesday, I got an order from this place today constantly I would eat the food in the car on the way home I couldn't even make it home with it it's all I did and it's all I thought I could do and the, and I've been eating and I, and I call it eating like a monster because it was not eating like a person which is what I hopefully do now um and it started you know like so many of us when I was six or seven years old with sneaking food and hiding wrappers and couch cushions and then being deeply, deeply ashamed when they were found and a progress to binges and then to purges. But I would always try to stop. I would have periods of large weight loss, either from crazy diets, restricting, you know, I had so many doctors and nutritionists and therapists and people who otherwise loved me who the only thing they cared about was losing weight. So they promoted really bad behaviors for somebody with with the, with clear eating disorders from a very early age. Um, and so I would lose chunks of weight. One of the largest was in 2003 when I conned everybody, primarily myself, into thinking I should have a fairly drastic bariatric surgery. It was a very bad idea. My body never really healed from it, and I, I did lose about 70, 65, 70 pounds in about the first several months, because I was so afraid of bursting a stitch, but it was very triggering for my bulimic issues, because food would get stuck. And because I'm me, I leaned into that. And so I figured out how to binge, purge, and I had it reversed a year later, put that weight back on probably another 100 pounds or so. Um, And, you know, by 2017, I wasn't trying to stop anymore. I had decided this was the only way I could get through the day. I didn't work. I didn't go to school. I moved into a house and got shades that pulled both up from the bottom and down from the top so that I could stay hidden. Um, I, these binges, when I say daily, I mean daily. And when I say epic, I mean epic, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of calories. And I had had a lot of health issues you know, throughout my life, certainly exacerbated by the way I was eating and my size. And I had had dizziness for a couple of years. And I found myself um, in a neurosurgeon's office. And he said, you know, you've got uh, these bones in your spinal cord and your neck are disintegrating, they're pushing on your spinal cord, we have to operate because eventually that's going to paralyze you. And then he stopped looking at me and he looked at the floor and he said, but I won't operate on you because you won't get off the table. And that was you know that was that was the choice right paralyze kill myself figure out a way to do this and i walked into an oa meeting with no expectations because nothing worked and i knew diets weren't going to work i'd been on all of them i'd been cut open and sewn up and cut open again um but this incredible thing happened in that i walked in and i felt the least amount of judgment from a room of people i'd ever felt in my life and i heard people telling my story. And I kept coming back. And when it came but you know, look, like like all of us have experienced, right? The god stuff was a lot. I did a lot of translating. Um but I was willing to put up with a lot of it because here were people speaking a language I'd never heard before that made a lot of sense to me. Um but when it came time to work the steps, I of course was very open and honest about being an atheist and the woman who twelve step me that first time said, and it turned out to be a really important thing for my recovery. She said, was there some concept, not a belief, not a, not a system, just a concept that I could use, use to be able to work the steps. In other words, was there some idea, abstract, made up, bullshit, whatever that I could use to do the action that was described in the literature? And she suggested I do the writing exercise where you sit down and you say, What do I need? What would I need to help me do these things? What would I need to help me make different decisions? And I realized it was as simple and as profound as I need the idea that I don't have to live this way. I need the idea that there is a different way for me to be. And as it turned out, you know, that's kind of acting as if on one end, but it's also kind of profoundly spiritual on another because. What I realized was, I do think that there's an energy to life. It's in cells. It's in my cells, your cells, this table cells, everything. And it has goodness and it has healing and it has recovery and it has redemption. And I get to access it. I get to act me. This piece of shit gets to access it. And... That's the higher power that allowed me to work the steps. And I've been abstinent since about a week into program. I've lost nearly 200 pounds, and I've kept it off for almost close to two years at this point. I had never even approached a normal weight, let alone tried to maintain one. Um, And when it comes to the question of how do I define recovery, which is sort of also how I maintain recovery, the key thing for me is space um there's a quote that I love that I have part of tattooed on me uh between stimulus and response there is a space in that space is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom and it's from Viktor Frankl who is a psychologist and a Holocaust survivor I'm a psychiatrist actually um, so literally that's the pause between the thought, the craving, you know, whatever, and actually doing the thing or not doing the thing you should do. And then figuratively, that's the space in which what I call my better self, which is the part of me that taps into that energy, that acknowledges that energy, that acts as if that energy can work for her. That's the space in which that voice is louder than my garbage self. And it's kind of like you're in a dark room and I'm, I shouldn't say you, I'm in a dark room And there's a sliver of light coming from a cracked open door. And I stick my foot in that crack and I wedge it open and I squeeze myself in there. And I sit in that space as much as I can and try and hear that voice, that voice that not only knows what that next right action is, but does it, even if she doesn't want to, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it hurts like hell. And um, that's what enabled that space enables me to keep food in its own lane. You know, there's a great story in the big book, which I'm not not—I'm not a big fan of it, but um, there's one story about his sobriety had to live a life of its own. And I think about that all the time. You know, life has not gotten, I mean, listen, I'd much rather be facing the things I'm facing at this weight than the other weight. But life doesn't stop, doesn't get easier. But the thing is, I actually have a life now. I'm a couple of months from graduating law school. Um, I'm going to actually have a career for the first time in my life um, at 43, and it's because the space lets me be uncomfortable because I have this idea that I'll be okay, that I don't have to self-destruct, and um, you know, it's the space where I play out the tape, and you know, I, I the tape there's a bitter end on my tape, and it's literally me over 300 pounds passed out in a parking lot on heroin because all the pot I'd been smoking to stop feeling ashamed wasn't working anymore. I mean, it's dramatic. It doesn't always have to be that dramatic. It can be, my pants will be tight. It can be, I'll have a stomach ache. It can be, I'll feel less hopeless. I'll feel more hopeless, you know, than I can put up with. Playing out the tape can be little or it can be huge. And, you know, my bottom line about recovery is not binging. And because my bottom line about recovery, not binging is the bottom line of my abstinence and my abstinence is the bottom line of my recovery. And that also allows me space in which to see a gray area where maybe if I slip that I get to be honest and acknowledge it. And because it's not black and white, I don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I can course correct and get back on track with it. And so um, I'm sure I don't have a lot of time left, but um, so beyond that, uh, other aspects of program that helped, you know, I'm glad I came into traditional OA. I'm glad I, you know, did the 12 steps in a traditional way, went to big book studies, all of that, because I feel like I needed that basis from which to depart. I rewrote the steps. I rewrote the prayers. I I have a plan. I give it away. I sponsor. It's, I always hear the things I need to hear when I say them to other people. and. I will wrap that up at this point. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Nina. And to all our panelists, thank you. That was wonderful. And now I'm going to turn it back to Kay.
1: Thank you. And I'd like to echo Susan's thanks. Those were four amazing shares and very helpful to us.
2: So welcome back, everyone. Um, we invite you to post your recovery strategies in the chat to share with everyone. And now we have time for actually just a few questions or comments for the panelists. If you'd like to remain anonymous and you have a question or comment, you can post your question in the chat to our team member Elizabeth C. and she'll read the question aloud. Please raise your raise your virtual hand to share for up to two minutes, and Shirley will call on you when it's your turn.
0: Thank you.
4: So. Um... I asked the question how to make the move from not abstinent to abstinent besides, quote, white knuckling for that interim. And I got the answer. Do it one meal at a time, one hour at a time. Wondered if anybody else has feedback for that. I have a little bit. Um,
3: I always say I got a lot more. I had a sponsor who used to give me a lot of suggestions and I used to I was like a two year old. I used to ask why, 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 why is this going to work? How should I, you know, what, what, why, why? Give me the whole rationale for why this works and then maybe I'll try it. And I started getting a lot better results when I stopped asking why and I started asking how. How to follow the directions. Like, okay, how do I do this? Just to try it, just for the hell of it and see if it worked. And lo and behold, usually it did work. Because it was something that somebody ahead of me had discovered, oh, this works. So I don't know if that's helpful. The following directions has been a big one for me because I'm not big on that. I always want my own way. Thank you. Uh, Janet?
0: Um, I I would agree with one meal at a time, but with having made a decision ahead of time is what worked for me. When I got to that enough is enough point. Because other times in my life when I tried to simply lose weight, I wasn't. Fully committed. And I realize now that I have full commitment, how different that feels. It was a mental shift. It was like walking from one chamber of my brain into another chamber of my brain and shutting the door forever on that previous chamber. So, but certainly, um, following my plan one meal at a time continues to build on my confidence that I can continue to do this. Thank you.
2: Anyone else? We have time for probably just one more.
5: Yeah. Hi, I've got a question from the chat from the, the community How uh, for the panelists. How much support understanding do you expect from family members living with you? I sometimes get upset that they don't pay attention to leaving red food around, even though I feel wobbly, for example. Well, I'll jump in and just say, I, I don't live with family, but I live very close to family and I spend a lot of time with them and have at least one family meal with them a week. And like most other people in recovery, my mother's the source of all of my problems. So, um, but she's also a wonderful woman who is not one of us who tries her best. And um, at the end of the day, and and I have the luxury of being able to leave and go to my own home. So with that caveat. Um I'm responsible for my recovery. And yeah, I resent it when other people make it harder. Absolutely. But the best I can do is when I'm in a better space to try and explain it to them, if they have the capacity to receive it, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing and say, look, you don't have to understand it. You just have to know this is what I need to do. And, you know, you're not helping. So I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. helpful
1: at all. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for the question, Susan.
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit secularovereaters.org and consider making a donation.